Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome to the Second Reading Podcast for the week of July 11th. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas, and I'm joined by my colleague, Josh Blank. Welcome back to town, Josh. Thank you. This week, we'll talk about the aftermath of the mass shootings in Dallas and how, inevitably, This aftermath is intersected with politics in the country, and especially here today in the state. Now, before we dive into these politics, we should say that our condolences go out to the families of all the victims in Dallas. This was a really horrific incident, and people are still actively coping with it as we record this. The president is in Dallas for the memorial for those who were killed. That said, today we want to think about the political context in Texas of these sad events, though everybody probably knows at least something from the media about this. Let's start with a recap of these events. Right. I mean, the the, the events in Dallas really uh, were the were the cap to what would, one would be, could describe as a pretty horrific week in America. And it started uh, on Tuesday when in Baton Rouge, uh, Police officers responded to a call uh, about a man who was you know, selling CDs outside a convenience store who had apparently threatened someone with a gun. So two officers responded, you know, an altercation ensued, and Alton Sterling, Sterling ended up uh, being shot and killed uh, in the ensuing incident, which, you know, as was becoming more and more increasingly common, this was all captured on videotape. Then on Wednesday, uh, in Minnesota, Philando Castile was shot and killed during uh, a traffic stop, with the immediate aftermath being streamed by the by the passenger on Facebook. Yeah, and this was in the area kind of between Minneapolis and St. Paul in Minnesota. Right, and these, the, I mean, these were, you know, you know, we've, we're sort of, you know, we get, we keep saying the term, you know, like uh, we're getting desensitized to these things. But if if you happen to to watch, you know either of these videos. I mean, they're really just, they're horrific. I mean, yeah. they're horrific events. So then on Thursday, uh, five police officers were shot uh, in Dallas during what was widely described as a very peaceful protest of, you know, sort of these and other incidents by Black Lives Matters movement, uh, individuals, other activists, uh, and what just sounded like, you know, utter chaos, basically. Yeah, five, five people killed. Seven uh, injured. Seven, seven other police officers injured, a couple of civilians as well. Um, and all, and again, all of that captured in lots of pieces of video and in a very chaotic scene in Dallas, to say the least. Right. So those are the sort of the events that happened last week that led to you know a fair amount of political response. Now we're going to focus on this piece, right? Right. And again, you know, there are a lot of different things, you know, it, both politically, non-politically, you could talk about. But we want to start with by talking about how the political leadership in Texas responded. Uh, Governor Abbott was actually out of town. He was in Jackson Hole preparing for the Republican Governors Association meeting, which is a a big political confab for Republican governors, a a very high-profile event uh, when this happened. There's a little side story with Governor Abbott having become injured. He received some burns from some hot water that were apparently pretty severe on his lower legs and feet. But nonetheless, Governor Abbott uh, was notified of this and, and flew back to Dallas and wound up making a, a pretty widely publicized statement on this. 
Uh, let's let's roll that sound and, and talk a little bit about that. Most importantly, today, on this day, and in the coming days, the primary message is one word, and that is unity. We need to understand that Texas has its own brand of principles that have helped elevate the state to true exceptionalism. Texans need to unite behind those very principles that will continue to elevate Dallas in the state of Texas. One of those principles is respect and reverence for the men and women who wear the uniform. Another is that we, the citizens of this state, need to play our own active role in ensuring safety and security in our communities, as well as justice and prosperity across the state. When we unite together behind those principles, we will ensure the Texas of tomorrow will be even better than the Texas of today. So Greg Abbott sounding very gubernatorial there in many ways at the broadest level, calling for unity, invoking uh, Texas citizenship in a way that's very familiar for, for people that are from Texas, um, but also probably signaling, sending some more subterranean signals a little bit there, uh, particularly the point about citizen responsibility and citizens participating in the safety environment. Um, let's just go ahead and then and contrast that a little bit or compare it to, not to, to give it away a little bit, uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick went on Fox News the morning after the shootings. And, and, and we should preface this by saying this is a moment when there was still a lot unknown. This, this unfolded in Dallas relatively late in the evening. Uh, the situation with the actual uh, shooter who was eventually killed by the Dallas police um, didn't really resolve itself until the wee hours of the morning. And there, was, and so, and there was still a lot of, you know, misinformation, still, uncertainty circling about as to, you know, I mean, to a lot of the details of this. So he's, yeah, he's, and, he's responding not in, a, in a, not from a place of full information. Right. So let's let's roll that sound from Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. All of these officers, has been said last night, lost their life protecting people who were protesting against them. This has to end I grew up in a world, I've been around long enough that we've always had bad people, we've always had dangerous people, but the general public respected the police. Too many in the general public who aren't criminals, but have a big mouth, are creating situations like we saw last night. Now that was actually, as we were pulling those clips out, even with the big mouth comment, that's actually one of the more diplomatic elements right. of of the lieutenant governor's interview that morning. Yeah, I mean, the the part that was sort of most widely sort of grasped onto by the media was that basically that, you know, he blamed the Black Lives Matter movement for the event. Directly. Directly, yeah. Yeah, and called everybody that was, that ran away from the shots as the police were trying to respond. Hypocrites. Hypocrites for uh, expecting the police to protect them when they were there protesting in part police violence. Right. Now, I, I think it's hard not to listen to those two clips, even in, you know, even in those short pieces and not see, at least on the surface, for sure, a contrast in tone. Right. And I think, you know, just as a, at the outset, it's worth saying, you know, there's sort of a the, the, this is what the media sort of latched onto first was sort of, you know, here was 
Patrick's immediate response and sort of the the bombast, I guess, and the blame and contrast that with Abbott's very steady, very calm kind of, you know, hand and sort of approaching this. And to some degree, you know, this was there's reasons to look at this way, but this is also part of a larger arc and narrative, right? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think the initial media response is actually characterized Abbott's response as a direct rebuke to Dan Patrick, which doesn't seem quite right to me. Right. I, you know, I, I read that and I said, oh, okay, let me go, you know, look deeper in this and really see, see what this is. And the idea was that, you know, whereas Patrick was blaming uh, Abbott's calling for unity and, and the idea was that his call for unity was somehow directly informed by Patrick's right. response, which one, I don't think that, you know, if you kind of say on its face as the governor of the state and sort of dealing with this tragedy, I think he's just responding to the situation, probably in yeah, the way that, made, that he, I think that's he's really supposed sensible. to. But also, I think if you look at you know the specific, if you really start to look deeply at sort of you know Abbott's uh, open letter, which is published in the Dallas Morning News, you know, I mean, he does make these reference to those who seek to divide us, and and the media, I mean, a lot of the media were quick to say, oh, this this is a rebuke to Patrick. They take these, they pull out these two these two clips where Patrick is blaming the Black Lives Matters protesters, and Abbott's saying, you know, we have to, you know, what, you know, basically protect ourselves from those who seek to divide us and say, oh, see, he's talking about Patrick. I'm not really sure that's what he was talking about. I think it really depends on the listener. And I think, you know, this is one of these things that we see all the time. And it does go to this, your, your question about the wider arc here. The, you know, reporters tend to be looking, or if they can find it, for some conflict. Right. And in particular, in the case of the governor and the lieutenant governor, we know that there is an expectation that while they're members of the same party, they are vying, as most governors and lieutenant governors have. Especially in, te- yeah, Texas in particular. For, in Texas for attention and for position and for political influence. Now, that doesn't mean they're at each other's throats all the time. But there's an inevitable bit of, of contention here. The press has certainly picked up on it. And it's something that's very front and center because both... Abbott and Patrick were both elected in 2014 after the same people had been in office for a long time. So there is a lot of curiosity among political insiders and observers about how the two are are settling, if you will, uh, in these two offices. And that gets played into this. But I, you know. So do you think their responses were actually, I mean, again, certainly in tone, they were different. Yeah. But in, in substance, would you say that they were significantly different from each other were they were there was there more similarities and differences you know i i i would i would argue that they're probably much more similar than they are different Mm -hmm. in the sense that they are both aiming to set a tone in terms of the call for unity but without abandoning their underlying beliefs and assumptions about who really deserves pride of place here, if you will, and probably most importantly, the audiences that they're trying to reach with particular messages. And so I think your point is exactly right in terms of saying, you know, when when Greg Abbott says we need to, you know, to paraphrase, not not respond to those who would divide us and leaves it at that, Dan Patrick is in style and in his ambition, I think, much more direct, mm-hmm. much more combative. Mm-hmm. And so th- his message is also, you know, we need to 
you know, not hear the voices of those who would divide us, but he's going to call them out and say exactly who he thinks is dividing us. Right, exactly. I mean, you can see the difference. In a lot of ways, it's the difference in style between someone who's a former radio host, which it comes through so clearly on that clip, yeah. versus someone who's a former lawyer, judge, attorney general. It's very careful, and the words can be parsed a little bit differently. So then, so then I think we can agree that you know, despite what was written about this, Abbott didn't really rebuke Patrick. Right. I mean, that was sort of, I think that was a read. Actually, the press rebuked Patrick. Yeah, the, pa- the press definitely and the rebuked Democrats. Patrick. Right. So did Patrick misfire here? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I, you know, I would have to say probably not in the sense that, um, you know, we can talk about public opinion. There's an audience uh, among his base and in the public for that. Mm-hmm. And... Frankly, Dan Patrick is cultivating an image or, you know, as everybody says now, a brand. And his brand, as you say, is rooted not in traditional lawyerly politics to some degree, but in a more raw brand of politics that really does reflect his his rise from talk radio. Right. So so I was mentioning public opinion. I mean, I, I think that's right. Don't you think the public opinion... If you start drilling down, is out there for, yeah. for this an audience? Isn't there an audience for this? Yeah, definitely there is. So you know, we we've asked about sort of issues of discrimination. We've actually asked specifically about institutions and society, including the police. And and you know, what's interesting is, I mean, you, there's some there's some stuff that's sort of interesting because it's I mean, it's not interesting in some ways, right? So when we asked about, <laughs> you're gonna have to explain that. Yeah, I know, because it's because <laughs> it's sort of obvious. I mean, it's sort of, when we asked about it, it wasn't necessarily obvious, but it's becoming more obvious. So we asked about you know to rate. You know, sort of your favorability towards institutions in society. You know, overall, the number one and number two institutions, according to Texans, this was back in February of 2015, were the military number one, viewed favorably by 78% of the Texas registered voters. And then the police were number two by 57%. Now, if you look at white Texans, 81% had a favorable view of the military, 65% of a favorable view of the police. If you look among black Texans, 66% had a favorable view of the military, only 29% had a favorable view of the police. Now, this is, you know, consistent with sort of, in a lot of ways, national attitudes, right? So around the same time, Pew asked uh, whether, you know, blacks are treated less fairly than whites by the that's police. A, that's the Pew Research right. Center, a big national research think tank. Right. So this is looking, at, this is looking at all Americans. And 50% of whites said that blacks are treated less fairly than whites when they're in their dealings with the police. 84% of blacks are this way. And so this is, you know, this is the public opinion line this, but then... You know, sort of broadly, but then if we look at who who Patrick is is most concerned about, and again, this is in Texas, where it's sort of a, right. a non-competitive general election environment, and the main you know concern for most Republican statewide office holders is whether they'll get challenged in an upcoming primary. You know, among the you know basically Texas Republicans, seventy-three percent have a favorable view of the police. Among Tea Party Republicans, seventy percent have a favorable view of the police. Additionally, when we look at, you know, attitudes towards groups in society and the amount of discrimination they face, uh, you know, so if we look at a range of groups, Christians, Muslims, whites, blacks, Hispanics, men, women, uh, gays and lesbians, uh, transgender individuals, um, I think that's everybody that we asked. There, you know, there may be. Yeah, I feel like we're missing somebody, but it's okay. Okay. There are a lot of people on that list. (laughs) Right. I don't have it in front of me. But if we ask what was the, you know, which is the most discriminated group in society, and this was asked just in, in June of this year. Among uh, Republicans in Texas, the number one group was Christians. Forty percent of Texas Republicans say Christians are the most discriminated against group. Seventeen percent Muslims, thirteen percent whites, and only six percent say African Americans are the most right. discriminated against group. Amongst Tea Party Republicans, who are sort of seen as being so active in Republican primaries, forty-eight percent said Christians, 
14% white said whites, only 9% said black. So, you know, this is to say that, you know, when Patrick is, uh, you know, let's say elevating, you know, an institution like the police, there's a, you know, a wide swath of Texans, especially those who are likely to vote him in a, for him in a primary who share that opinion. When he, you know, let's say disparages the Black Lives Matters movement as a as a cause of this kind of tragedy. The fact is, is that there are a lot of people who vote for him who don't see blacks as facing the type of discrimination that the Black Lives Matters movement is trying to elevate into the national conversation. Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right and well explained. And I and I think that you know there there's a you know there are ways in which as you hear the appeals from both Abbott and 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 from Dan Patrick tapping into that wellspring of support for an institution like the police like the military the sense of law and order you know it's it's hard to not see that as a winner in Texas and for two different reasons i mean i think on one hand there are these deep roots of kind of traditionalism in the political culture in the state. It's a very socially conservative state that is not quick to be critical of institutions, like particularly institutions of law and order, if you will. Um, no matter how much we talk about how much discontent and and criticism of institutions are out there, a lot of that, as those same numbers show, uh, reveal, are focused on the federal government. So there's that piece that's almost like the in the, the structural foundation of people's attitudes and in the culture out there, then there's also things that are much more current. I mean, right now, you know, we're going through a presidential election and there's a national dialogue going on. You know, you were talking about when we started how, how last week felt so chaotic and so disruptive to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I mean, I had, you know, I've had people asking all weekend as we've talked, you know, does this feel like the 60s again? Is it 1968? I mean, I talked to a reporter at the Statesman who was really trying to talk that up. I'm not sure that's quite right, but that that feeling is really out there. And frankly, at the presidential level, which we'll have occasion to talk about later, Donald Trump is channeling that. I mean, Trump tweeted yesterday or maybe even this morning, this election is a choice between law, order and safety or chaos, crime, and violence. I will make America safe again for everyone. So Dan Patrick's channeling of that that anxiety and that those that those those vast differences in attitudes between different groups, racial groups, partisan groups, uh, is really out there and in the air and shaping people's people's attitudes. And we should, you know, we should really underline as we as we close out on time. There were a million things we could have talked about in this. Yeah, you know, I, you know, I should say if, as, if you know, as you're sort of reacting to these events and it feels, you know, it feels chaotic and complicated. I mean, I think that's because it is, right? You know, uh, and if it seems simple, or if this is seem, you know, this sort of these incidents, events, and the reactions to it seem like they're about, you know, one thing, it's probably because you're looking at it too simply. Now, part of this is sort of again not to not to you know throw another shoe at the media here, but part of this is just the nature of cable television, right? right? Because, because then you'll have to borrow one of mine, right? <laughs> yeah, they're bigger. Uh, the thing is, I mean, we're coming on here and we're talking about the political response, I and mean, we've chosen to, to look at a very narrow fo- focus here because we're, our interest is contemporary Texas politics, right? But that's only one thing we we could have talked about, right? We could have talked about you know, the relationship between the police and the citizens they protect and serve. We could talk about, you know, the legacies of slavery in this country. We could talk about 
the criminal justice system and its successes and its failures, right? We could talk about the psychology of stereotypes, bias, and prejudice at an individual, a, a group, or a mass level. We could talk about gun rights and gun control. Right. It's, a, it's a big, complicated thing with a bunch of things, feed, a bunch of factors feeding into it. And, and the truth of the matter is, though people talk about a pause in these things and a pauses to reflect, and we said there really aren't any pauses anymore. I no. mean. You know, there some people are more restrained than others at given times, and but the velocity and the volume of the things that of, of people taking to Twitter, taking to Facebook, taking to the various forms of cable television, to whatever form of media, social or otherwise, you listen to, it just it just floods you with points of view and trying to draw your attention to one thing. I think it's important for people to. It's, it's a kind of media consumption 101. If somebody seems to really be focusing on one thing, it's probably for a purpose other than to merely enlighten you. Right. Right. I mean, that's the thing. Everybody has, you know, sort of their own, you know, cause and angle on these things. And honestly, I mean, the fact is, you know, we could have we could have spoken about any or all of those things, but we could speak about it for hours, days. And people have been talking about these things and writing about them for, you know, decades, if not centuries, for some of these issues. And so this is, you know, this is an extremely complicated thing that's hard to understand. But, you know, you sort of take it one block at a time and kind of start to see what are the connections between these elements. And and you can start to kind of see that, you know, this is complicated. This isn't, you know, I mean, I think with, you know, I think you're bringing up Trump is a, is a good point. I was sort of, rea- I'm internally reacting to, to that tweet. <laughs> you hadn't and thinking, seen that yet, had you? No, I hadn't seen it. And internally reacting to that tweet, it's like, how? Yeah. Right. Well, and it's also for those of us that are, you know, but this would be older. true. But this is true to anybody. I mean, this is true yeah, to no, Clinton's right. response. This isn't a, a partisan, you know, sort of how. This is just a, a how because this is a really, really complicated set of issues. Yeah, and, and, I'll, and I'll play, and I'll, and I'll be like Dan Patrick and say how old I am and how much I've seen, and you know, it's one of those instances where you know that much as I've been resisting this 1968 comparison because I don't think it's quite right for a lot of reasons. But the sense of disruption and the sense of law and order versus chaos really is reminiscent of, you know, of Richard Nixon and, and the sixty in the sixty eight presidential campaign, the appeal to the silent majority, all of which are things we'll have a chance to talk about in future podcasts. So, uh, with that, we will close it out, and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project and the Project 2021 Development Studio at the University of Texas at Austin.